Shall we read together in the first book of Kings and chapter 19? In the first book of Kings and chapter 19. One Kings chapter 19, we shall read from verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he, saw that he, uh, when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way, 
to the wilderness of Damascus. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 12 and the last part of the verse and after the fire a still small voice and after the fire a still small voice and then in Revelation chapter 3 Revelation chapter 3 and verse 22 He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Elijah was one of the greatest servants of the Lord under the Old Covenant. There's no doubt about that. He and Moses are taken to represent and symbolize all that the Old Covenant stood for. Moses standing for the law and symbolizing the law, and Elijah symbolizing and standing for the prophets. In Jewish tradition, both Moses and Elijah have a very, very great place indeed. And it is interesting that this is not some empty tradition, because when our Lord was transfigured, it was given to these two servants of the Lord to appear with him in glory, representing all the saints who overcame in the old covenant. Now Elijah learnt his biggest lesson not in the triumph over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which must for all of us be the most dramatic and sensational story of his life. But Elijah learnt the biggest lesson of his life when he fled in disobedience to the Lord from Jezebel. The Lord understood Elijah and loved Elijah, just as the Lord understands you and loves you and the Lord understands me and loves me and when Elijah flung himself alone under that juniper and said it's enough now let me die because I really am no better than the rest the Lord let him fall asleep and then an angel awoke him and fed him without a word of rebuke and then he fell asleep again. And we don't know how many hours elapsed. Some, some have suggested that it was the two meals that we would have called breakfast and an evening meal if he went overnight, traveling overnight. 
It was the two main meals of the day. After he'd had his sleep, the angel woke him up and would say to us, breakfast is ready. For him it would have been as it were supper is ready. And not a word of rebuke. And in the strength of that food, Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights in the wrong direction. (laughs) Farther and farther away from where the Lord wanted him to be, which was in the north, uh, in the area of Damascus, to anoint a king. And when finally Elijah got to the very end, he couldn't have gone very many more miles or he would have gone into the sea. There was no more land to go. He came to Horeb. And at Horeb, he stood before the Lord. And it was then that the Lord spoke to him in reproof. What are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord said. And Elijah began immediately, as all of us do, and we servants of the Lord are the best at it. He began to rehearse the whole thing in an apologetic way. Well, Lord, he said, you know they've cast down your altars, slain your prophets, disobeyed you, contravened the covenant, and now I am the only one left, and Lord, they're after me. And then the Lord said to him, Very well, Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before me. And he went out and stood. And then he saw three things which summed up his ministry. They must have been the most dramatic sort of exhibition of divine power, like divine firework display almost, uh, that anyone could have seen. First, there was a wind that hit the mountainside with such velocity that it split the rocks in two, and there must have been that marvelous sound of falling rocks as well as the hurricane force of the wind. And then there was an earthquake which shook everything but Elijah. Elijah was quite used to this. He just loved it. He stood there, as far as we can see, erect. I watched the wind, and then uh, sort of admired the effects of the earthquake as the ground trembled and shook. And finally a fire. And it says the Lord was not in the wind. And the Lord was not in the earthquake. And the Lord was not in the fire. Now those three things summed up Elijah's ministry. Wind, earthquake, and fire. And there's nothing wrong with wind or earthquakes or fire when it's something spiritual. Oh, God has to do some big things in ministry. Without the wind of God, there's not much hope. We sing, breathe on me, breath of God. And without an earthquake, very little ever gets done until a lot of other things that shouldn't be there are shaken down. And without fire, there is no power. But there is something far more important than wind or earthquake and fire. And it was this that Elijah had to learn that day. After the fire, there was the sound of gentle stillness, or as we've got it in our older version, a still, small voice. 
And then the Lord said to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? And it shows um, <clears throat> the kind of nature we all have that Elijah trundled out the same apology as before. It is he was obviously being deeply moved by the still small voice, but he couldn't help himself. He said exactly the same words again. Lord, they've done this and this and this and this and this, and I only am left, and now they're after me. And the Lord didn't say another word to him except, go, return. Now, I think that contains for us one of the greatest lessons that any child of God can learn. The early church had seen the wind of God. It came on Pentecost, and it blew like a hurricane force through the Roman Empire. The early church saw the earthquake. It shook the whole traditional institutionalism of Judaism and finally shook it almost in one sense, we might say, to pieces. The early church saw the fire. It came on the day of Pentecost and burnt everything before it as those great servants of the Lord moved on the roads of the Roman Empire. But when we come to the end of the New Testament, we find that the Lord is, as it were, saying to the churches, yes, you've had the wind, but I was not in it. It's necessary, but I was not essentially in it. You've had the earthquake, but I was not in it. And you've had the fire, but I was not in it. He that hath an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. In other words, in the end, the most vital lesson that any one of us can learn, the youngest Christian to the oldest and most experienced servant of the Lord, is that to hear the Lord's voice and to obey it is more important than a thousand conferences and a million meetings. What God requires above everything else is a hearing ear and an obedient heart. And so deceived and deluded can we become that we can get entrenched in some excuse and some apology that even when God has really spoken to us and we know he's spoken to us, still the old apologetic excuse is brought out. For this reason, it seems clear to me, that the Lord, having spoken to the seven churches in Asia that represented churches all over the world, they did not hear. And the result is that by the third century after Christ, the whole thing has become formalized, institutionalized, and traditionalized, and very real errors have come in 
and taken it all over. The thing has become a vast, universal structure and system, and the life has been well-nigh killed. It is amazing to me that it is in the Word that the Lord said to every one of those seven churches representing all the churches in time and in place. He said it again and again, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He even personalizes it. He doesn't say, let the church hear what the Spirit saith to the churches, but he says, let him that has an ear hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. There are really just three things that I want to underline this evening that I feel as a burden in my own spirit and feel that I need just to discharge it. I am quite sure that it has general meaning for us at all times, but probably what I have to say this evening has particular meaning for us as a people, not only here but elsewhere, at this particular phase in the purpose of God in our day and generation. The first thing I want to just say is this and underline and emphasize is that the vocation, the divine vocation for man is to have dominion. I'll put that, I'll try to put it more simply. The calling of God uh, for man is that we should have dominion over all things that he has created. That is our vocation. Not to be under, but to be above. Not to be the tail, but to be the head. Not to be defeated, but to overcome. Not to be subdued, but to subdue. That is our divine vocation as man. We see it all the way through scripture. Later on, of course, as we go on in the word of God, it gets summed up in two things, or three things you could almost say. Uh, the first, is the throne of God. And what a major part of Scripture is taken up with this whole theme of the throne of God, however you put it. The throne of God, the kingdom of God, if you like to put it in another way. The ascendancy of God, the rule of God. The administration of God. There are many ways you can put it, but you'll find it all the way through Scripture. The throne of God. And we find that the purpose of God is not that you and I should just be servile subjects of his throne, but that we should be so trained and so conformed to the image of his son that we should reign from the throne. And furthermore, that we should reign from the throne here and now, made to sit 
together with Christ in heavenly places. That sums the whole thing up. We're not to be the tail, we're to be the head. We're not to be under, we're to be above. It is the very purpose of God that you and I should reach the throne of God, should know what it is to reign with God now and be trained in learning how to overcome, how to possess our possessions, how to subdue the enemy, how to nullify his power. In the end, we should be trained for the throne of God, if you like the administration of God, the eternal administration of God. That's really much of what is summed up in the word kingdom. Another, of course, a word we get in Scripture, and we find it all the way through from Revelation 12, right the way through to the end of the Bible, is the city of God. Of course, the city of God is described variously, sometimes as the city of God, sometimes as Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem, and sometimes as the wife of the Lamb, and sometimes the bride of Christ. But however it is viewed, it is the same thing. And whilst the bride and the wife reveal to us something of the longing of God for an intimacy with us, a love relationship, something that is so sacred, so intimate, so, so inner, inward. The city of God's side of it expresses um, the desire of God that we should know what it is to reign with him, to administer his rule, to really know what it is to sit down with the Lord Jesus Christ in his throne. A city is a center of administration. It is the center of government over an area. And that's why we find in the Bible this wonderful theme all the way through the Bible, this theme of Jerusalem, the city of God. Of course, another um, way we see it as well is head and body. The whole point of a body is that it is joined to the head and expresses the mind and the will of the head, the intelligence of the head, the mind of the head. And you've got the same thought again, not in the Old Testament, but when you come to the New Testament, the most used um, uh, figure or uh, uh, um, picture, illustration of this relationship of the redeemed and their Lord is that of body to head. From beginning to end in the Bible, we have this thing. If you take your Bible, I can show you just a few of the scriptures this evening. Beginning in Genesis and, ch and chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, the interesting thing, really, is this word, subdue. 
Because I think most people have the idea that when the earth was created, there was no need to subdue anything in it. And yet this word subdue is the word, the Hebrew word commonly used of subduing enemies, of subduing disorder. You'll find it all the way used through the Old Testament in this way. And it's interesting that God did not do everything for man. This may be a little clue to what eternity will be like. But some people seem to think that it'll be boring because there'll be nothing to do. There'll be no challenge. There'll be nothing to challenge us, as it were, um, to overcome, as it were. Uh, not in the way of so much of sin. But the fact is that when God created the earth, whilst it was all good, it needed subduing. And there may be very, very much in that word that we as yet don't understand. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, we have the same thought again. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And that word keep is very interesting. To dress it we understand. But the Lord put him in the garden to keep it, to guard it, to watch over it. That is very interesting because it's before the fall um, of man. We have again the same thought in Genesis, and I'm sorry, in Psalms, uh, this eighth Psalm, Psalm 8, and verse 6. Having spoken about the heavens and the universe and how tremendous it is and beyond our comprehension and understanding, he says in verse 6, verse 5, we'll read, For thou hast made him but little lower than God and crownest him with glory and honor. Thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and thou hast put all things under his feet. In some of your modern versions it says, um, Thou hast given him uh, dominion over all that thou hast created, and thou hast put all things under his feet. You've got then some amazing uh, words here. This word dominion, um, here is to cause to rule. You have caused him to rule over everything you have created and put all things in subjection under his feet. Now this dominion that man was to have was never ever thought of by God as something to be exercised or to be experienced apart from God. In other words, this dominion that man was to have over every single thing he created, to know this or, or everything under his feet, was to be in union with God and never apart from him. It's not self-sufficient dominion. Now, the interesting thing is this, that since the fall of of man, man has sought to have dominion independently of God. And the whole of human history is this quest for dominion. Dominion over natural resources, dominion over things that are wrong, dominion over men, apart from God. Babel is the illustration of this thing in Genesis 11. When men sought to build a tower that would link heaven and earth. 
It was the first great attempt, if you like to put it, in terms that we would understand, to bring heaven onto earth. And to do it by human endeavor. In other words, it was fallen man's genius. This dream that is deep within the human heart to somehow or other to create a utopia, to create a human paradise, to bring in a golden age, to bring in a kind of millennium of prosperity and peace, but altogether apart from God. Human resources, human genius, human create creativeness, and so on and so forth. That's Babel. And from then on, throughout the Bible, this word Babel, we find, represents a whole spiritual idea. It is, of course, again in Hebrew, the word that is always used for the Greek word Babylon. Uh, for some reason, our translators always use the word Babylon. But in the text, it is Babel, Babel. And it's all the way through the scripture. Every time later you read of Babylon, it is a reference back to this Babel. It represents human endeavor, human resources, human genius, apart from God. The attempt of man to have dominion over all things in his own strength and by his own power with his own wisdom. That is the explanation or human history. And later on in the Bible, when we come to the time of Daniel, where we have the greatest um, unveiling of the whole of human history from Nebuchadnezzar right down to our own day, we find in Daniel and chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a colossus, some vast, huge statue huge idol, if you like, huge statue, its head and shoulders gold, its breast silver, its thighs uh, 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 brass, its legs iron, and its toes a mixture of iron and clay. And um, Nebuchadnezzar saw this magnificent statue and saw all the world giving it worship. And then he saw suddenly a stone coming out of the heavens, not cut by human hand, hurtling, as it were, through space toward the statue, a small stone, which finally hit the statue at its feet. And the whole thing crumbled into pieces. And then the stone became bigger and bigger and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, until it filled the whole world. And no one could understand this extraordinary dream that Nebuchadnezzar had before he was converted. And Daniel was given understanding of that dream. And you will, will remember that Daniel says, O king, you have seen not only your own empire, but the empire that follows, and the empire that follows that, and the empire that follows that. And he said, in the days of that last great empire, which was the Roman Empire, which in scripture, by the way, continues in spirit and in principle, right down to Western democracy, and includes it. That in the days of that last kingdom, there shall come out of heaven uh, this one who is really the Messiah. And really we have his two comings brought into one. Through him, 
This whole colossus that mankind worships and believes is the epitome of all that they could desire will crumble into ruin and into, into pieces, be shattered into pieces. And his kingdom shall reign forever and ever. Now, the interesting thing is this, that when we go on later in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and so on, we find that again and again he speaks of certain saints. And he says, and this is what he says again and again, and the time shall come for the saints to possess the kingdom. You find this phrase not once, but a number of times in those latter uh, uh, visions uh, and dreams that Daniel had. Now, what is all this about? <laughs> Just simply this. It was God's original design and plan, if you like, his vocation for man, that man should have dominion. That man, if you like, in union with God, should be the means by which the whole universe was possessed, exploited, that human genius indwelt by the Spirit of God, human creativity, indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, if you like, ruled by the Spirit of God, broken, as it were, of any sense of self-importance or ambition, and, yet, and released into being able, to being able to express all the genius that God has put within the human uh, being that somehow or other God, in union with man, would control and govern the whole universe. We don't even know what it would have, would have happened if sin had not come in. We just get little glimpses of it, where we're told that there will come a day when the lion will lie down with the lamb, when the child will play with the poisonous a snake, uh, when somehow or other all the trees uh, and the created things will be released from their bondage to corruption into this wonderful, uh, glorious liberty of the sons of God. We have only little glimpses of it. We don't really know all that God had in mind for this world, except that with all its beauty, at present, it has been subjected to a cycle of corruption, now, when man fell, God's plan for man never changed. What happened when man fell? What happened was simply this, that instead of subduing, he became subdued. Instead of overcoming, he was defeated. Instead of being at the head, he went underneath. Instead of being over everything, he went under everything and, and, and was a person at the mercy of circumstances, of evil spirits, energized by the spirit of the powers of the air, and so we can go on and on and on. The father of lies fathered him. And something of that poison got into man. But God has never given up, listen to me, God has never given up his original plan and design for mankind. Through the redemption which is in Christ, he not only saves us, that, if you like, is the smallest part, tremendous as it is, it is the smallest part 
of what God has sought to do through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To forgive us, to justify us, to cancel out our sin, to clothe us with the robe of salvation, the garments of righteousness, to make us a praising people. All this God has done. But his aim is to bring us back to the place where we have dominion. That's why God will not help us once we start to grow. Spirit. He, doesn't, he doesn't come along like, like some um, divine nursemaid to continually tide us over every single thing that comes. No, no, not at all. Sometimes he allows the problems to come into our lives that would not normally come. All kinds of things come into the life of the Christian. All kinds of things come into a company of real believers with the one express object of teaching them to have dominion. Because to God, it is far more important that you and I should learn how to exercise authority, how to reign with Christ, how to know and experience what it is to sit with Christ in heavenly places, how to know all things in subjection under our feet, how to know, uh, how to, as it were, gain uh, the victory. In other words, God is not going to help us to get victory in a cheap, easy way. He has provided all the grace required for victory. It's all in the finished work of Christ. But he is not going to, as it were, carry us through the battle. He wants to teach our hands to war. He wants to teach us to have good spiritual muscles. He wants to teach us... Why does he want to teach us these things? Because he has eternal vocation in mind. If he were to succumb to, and, and if I may so speak of God, and to become sentimental and sort of say, poor things, they're crying to me day and night about this problem that they've got, I'd better remove it. What happens? The problem is removed. The issue is removed. The challenge is removed. We get what we want. But we have lost our inheritance. This is what it means in one place in the scripture where it says, he granted their request and sent leanness into their souls. If you long for idolatry long enough, and God speaks to you once, and speaks to you again, and speaks to you a third time, God will finally say, go! And you will go into the very center of idolatry. That's what he did with his people. He spoke to them once. He spoke to them again. He spoke to them again. And they would not only, they would not, only not listen. They killed his prophets. And so finally God said, Therefore, very well, you shall go into the very heart and center of idolatry. You shall go to Babylon. Seventy years you shall have of this thing until like some good homeopath you are immunized forever against this idolatry. Now the interesting thing is this, that when it came to going into idolatry, oh, the people got so afraid of it. When finally they had rejected the Lord the third time, he said, therefore you shall go in. They began to say, no, 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 no. And they heaped to themselves prophets who would say, no, 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 of course not. Now they began to tell, you shall be safe in your own land. God dwells in Jerusalem. This is the house of the Lord. This is where the Lord's name is found. Of course not. Only Jeremiah stood and said, you shall go into Babylon. 
Because you have not learnt your lesson, you shall go into Babylon and you shall stay there 70 years. And then you shall return. And when you return, you will be cured forever of idolatry. God can give us what we want, but do we want it at that cost? Do you want to have what you want at that cost? The children of Israel in the wilderness wanted so much to get out of Egypt, and when they went out, they joyfully despoiled the Egyptians. As the Egyptians handed them their silver trinkets and earrings and rings and necklaces and well, I don't know what else, why, they just took all they could. It was so exciting getting over the Red Sea and into the land, but it wasn't, it wasn't three days into the wilderness before they began to think of Egypt. And before a month, they were longing for the leeks of all things and the garlic <laughs> and the onions of Egypt. Can you imagine it? They didn't think of a promised land. And every man sitting under his own vine and under his own olive tree. All they could think of was garlics and leeks and onions. <laughs> oh, what a sad thing when you think of it going back somehow or other to that, to exchange somehow your uh, promised land, your inheritance forever for the house of bondage. But do you know there are many of us who are just like that? We would rather be in Egypt, in the house of bondage, having a surfeit of onions and garlic <laughs> and leeks, than to be in a promised land. The strange thing is that in Egypt you have to do everything by hand. Every bit of water has to be pumped up. Not a drop comes down. I was in Egypt for two years. The first year we had ten minutes of rain in the whole year. And the second we had three minutes. Every bit of water had to be by human hand, or by some poor donkey, had to be somehow laborious. But in the promised land, the water came down from heaven. I'll never forget Willie Burton's message here years ago about onions and leeks and garlic, which he said you had to go down to pull up every one of them. God put a band of blue around them to tell them, don't look down. It wasn't a band of brown. Look up. Vines come from up. Olives come from above. You pick them. The water in the promised land comes down from God. The water in Egypt is pumped up by man. But it is a strange thing that some of us would prefer to be in the house of bondage 
and sweat out all our days. And this is a good night to talk about sweating. <laughs> uh, sweat out all our days. Um, uh, sort, of, sort of bringing up the water. It's all human <laughs> endeavor. All the time. Instead of that that comes down from the heavens. That people of Israel moaned and groaned so much in spite of the fact that the Lord loved them with all his heart. He said, very well then. If you don't want to go into the promised land, you shall not go in. Not one single one of you that has murmured against me. Only Joshua and Caleb, they alone shall go over into the land. And God sent them into a cycle round the wilderness for 40 years until every one of them died in the wilderness because they despised the inheritance of God. Only the two who would have nothing to do with it but understood that there was an inheritance to obtain through the grace of God were allowed to go through. They had dominion. They overcame. And you see it in the end when epitomized in, I think it's Joshua or Caleb's words, I don't know which of them, when he said, give me this mountain. It was Caleb. Give me this mountain. It summed up the whole overcoming spirit of the man. I don't want the plain. I don't want the desert. I'll have that mountain. Give me this mountain. Now, wherever you turn in the word of God, you will find this thing that God wants us to have dominion. He doesn't want to just redeem us. He doesn't just want to make us lovely little children, well-dressed and happy. He wants to take us through all those rites full stages to the place where we can exercise dominion. He said to Pharaoh, let my son go free that he may serve me. He spoke of Israel as a son, my firstborn. Let him go free that he may serve me. Isn't it interesting that God spoke of Israel as his firstborn? Meaning that there were many other children but that Israel was the firstborn through which all the blessings should come to the rest of the nations. Remember that. Let my son, my firstborn, go that he may serve me. That was God's plan for that people. Now, my point is this, that the church is to rule and to reign, not in eternity alone, but now. And now we have to learn it. What does it say in Ephesians and chapter 1 and verse um, 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet, that is the Lord Jesus, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now there are two wonderful things here. First, there is this which we all recognize, that Christ is the fullness of all the body. We all recognize that. But the second great truth is even more remarkable and not very uh, generally understood. The body is his fullness. In other words, Christ wants us together, related together, to be joined to him in such a way that he can exercise his government through us. 
his dominion. The fact that all things are under his feet. He wants to express it through us as flesh and blood. The fact that he's been made head over all things to the church. He wants to express that. Through his body. In this sense, his body is his fullness. The means by which he expresses the fullness of his government, the fullness of his redemption, the fullness of his power, the fullness of his wisdom, the fullness of his grace. He, he wants to express it through a vessel. And you and I, dear child of God, dear children of God, we are that vessel. By grace alone, we are that vessel. That's why in Matthew chapter 16, when the Lord Jesus said to them, and, you know, who do, do men say that I am? And they'd answered various, in various ways. He said to Peter, and whom do you say I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he said this, Thou art Peter, upon this rock, that is the solid massif of the rock, and not just the splinter, which is Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Unto thee have I given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, Peter, if you are to know somehow or other these gates of hell locked up, you've got to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And if there are times when those gates have got to be unlocked so that captives within it can come out into the freedom of the Lord and be saved, you've got to use those keys. That's why in the next chapter we have these words again, I say unto you, if two of you on earth shall agree as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them and my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together into my name, there am I in the midst of them. In other words, we are to exercise dominion. We're to have dominion. We're to exercise rule. It sounds also wonderful till we have to come into the experiences. Whether they're personal, whether they're corporate, whether they're national, whatever they are, after all, God's storms come upon the just and the unjust. And in the days of God's judgment, unless he mercifully sends the word for his elect people to be preserved, they suffer along with those who have brought upon them this judgment. And in such days we have to learn how to overcome, how to have the dominion, how to subdue the enemy. Oh, I wish that we had the time to speak about this matter. In Revelation 5.10 it says about these ones that are brought from every kindred and tongue and people and nation and made a kingdom of priests unto our God and his Christ. And then it says, and they reign upon the earth. Not they shall reign, but they reign upon the earth. And then again, just to force this point 
To emphasize it even more, in Revelation 12, it says these wonderful words, you know them well, but I wonder whether you ever have noticed these words in verse 10. Now is come, what? The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. And then it goes on and says this, and they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they loved not their lives even unto death. Salvation, you know what salvation is, do you? Do you know what a full salvation is? Why, most of us don't even know what a full salvation is. Salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. I can't help feeling that if we could learn from the history of the church, it would help us so greatly. For it seems to me that the people of God at various times have been at points of great crisis, points when they have not known it, in the full flood of what God has been doing, some point has been reached at which almost unknown to them the departure sets in. If only the people of God had had an ear to hear what the Spirit was saying. If only, if only in all the great activity and preaching and Bible study and even prayer meetings there had been people who had an ear to hear what the Lord was saying. The whole story of church history could have been different. But the story of the history of the church is simply this, that again and again and again, no one has heard. And thus, in times of crisis, there is no one to stand in the gap. There is no one to build up the wall. There is no one to intercede with God. And his overflowing wrath has come onto the whole. And that leads me to underline this. If it is the vocation of God that we should have dominion, and he has never, ever changed his mind on this thing, nor will. But his plan is to bring us to the throne of God and to his city. Then, dear child of God, such dominion can never come through mere Bible study or knowledge of doctrine or Bible college course or theological degree or position, or title, or even being able to minister the word of God. God needs our ears. If you turn in the Bible, you will find this matter of ears everywhere. Exodus chapter 21 And verse 5 and 6. But if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. 
Then his master shall bring him unto God, and shall bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. I wonder why it was that God bored through the ear. I'll tell you why. Because if you want a servant, you must have his ear. What good is a servant who is the most gifted genius in the whole world if you haven't got his ear? The one thing required in a servant is an ear. Not only to hear what the master says, but to hear what the master says. <laughs> Some people sometimes hear when the Lord shouts loud enough, but they don't know what he said. Only that there's some need. It is amazing to me how God can speak to us and we do not listen to what he says. Sometimes we make our appeal to the Lord both personally and corporately and we say, Lord, what should we do about so and so? And the Lord will expressly say such and such, such and such and such and such and we don't hear. Sometimes he has to say it again and again over months and then finally we sort of wake up and say, do you know I think we're getting what the Lord wants? He said this, he said this, and he said this. That's why this servant, if he was to serve his master forever, had his ear pierced. Again, I want you to turn to Exodus 29 and verse 20. Then thou shalt kill the ram and take of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons, upon the thumb of their right hand and upon the great toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Isn't it interesting? When these, the high priest and the priests were consecrated, the blood touched the ear first, and then the thumb, and then the toe. Oh, that God would burn such a lesson into the heart of every one of us. Some of us think it's our toes that need the blood, so that we can run into the purpose of God. God says, I don't want your feet. I must get your ears. Some people say, oh Lord, here are my hands. I'll work for you, I'll work. God says, I don't want your hands, it's your ear. First your ear, then your hands, and then your feet. Turn again to Leviticus and chapter 8 and verse 23 and 24. And he slew it. And Moses took of the blood thereof and put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot and he bought Aaron's sons and did the same, if you like. Then look at uh, Leviticus 14. And verse 14. And the priest shall take of the blood of the trespass offering and the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. This is the leper. Twice, four times in fact, in this chapter it comes. That when the leper is cleansed, you take the blood of him that is to be cleansed, put it on his ear, put it on his ear. In other words, 
sin begins with not hearing God. Put it on his ear, his hand, what he does, what he works, and upon his feet, where he goes. Later, when the leper is cleansed, he is to again, the blood of a ram is taken, and again, on the ear, upon the thumb, and upon the great toe. You see, God is driving home a lesson. Don't put the cart before the horse. It's not the feet or the hands, it's the ear. Oh, dear Elijah, his feet ran so much. His hands, they worked so well. And he did hear the Lord. But the greatest lesson of his life was when he found God saying to him, Elijah, your feet and your hands mean nothing to me if I haven't got your ear. Earthquake, wind, and fire. But the most important, is the still small voice. Look at Psalm 40 and verse 6. Words that are taken of our Lord Jesus. Sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in. Mine ears hast thou opened, or literally mine ears hast thou dug or digged, pierced. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I am come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. God doesn't require your sacrifice if it is a substitute for your ear. It is your ear that he wants. Look at Proverbs. Chapter 2, from verse 1. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and lay up my commandments with thee, so as to incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding, yea, if thou cry after discernment and lift up the voice of understanding, if thou seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. If you don't have an ear to hear, the Lord can talk and talk and talk. And you will get nothing. Well, really, our time has gone for much, really, many other scriptures that I would like to give you. I think of Isaiah, so many scriptures in Isaiah, all, all the way through Isaiah, you can, I could give you scriptures. But particularly, I think of these ones in Ezekiel and chapter 12 and verse 2. Son of man, Thou dwellest in the midst of the rebellious house that have eyes to see and see not, that have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Now you get this again and again. Jeremiah 5, verse 21. Jeremiah 5, verse 21. 
Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, that have eyes and see not, that have ears and hear not. And in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10, you have exactly the same thing. Go, that in seeing they shall not see, and in hearing they shall not hear. You remember the words of the Lord through Isaiah. Thou shalt hear a voice behind, thine ear shall hear a voice behind thee saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it when ye turn to the right hand or to the left. Oh, isn't it important to hear that voice? There are times when we can be moving along a course and we fail to hear that voice of the Lord when we turn. Almost unknown to ourselves, we are deviating, either corporately or individually. We fail to hear the voice of the Lord. Our Lord Jesus took this up again and again. In Matthew 13, Matthew 13, And verse 9. He that hath ears, let him hear. Verse 43. He that hath ears, let him hear. You can hear the Lord Jesus saying this again and again. Almost, it almost seems to be ridiculous. There were all those people there with ears. They were hearing his words. They were asking him questions. But he says, he that hath ears to hear. And he meant more than physical hearing. Let him hear. There is something which I just suggest to you as a study. To look up in the word, in the Old Testament particularly, the little word, incline thine ear to hear. You will find it again and again and again and again. If thou wilt only incline thine ear to hear. I think there's something in that statement that most of us have not yet understood. Well, now, I mustn't go on. But when you come to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 13, you find this word, he that hath an ear to hear. And the Lord puts it so amazing, just an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Do you know the Laodicean church had got to such a pitch of self-sufficiency, of routine, of good, sound Christian activity. They thought they had everything. They thought they had need of nothing. And the head of the church and the saviour of the body was outside the very door of the church, knocking and saying plaintively, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Him that overcometh. I will grant to sit down with me in my throne even as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Do you think it could be possible for a company of believers on good, solid ground, meeting together as Christians, as believers, 
with all their routine, with all their activity, could have somehow rather almost unwittingly pushed the Lord right outside so that he is outside knocking at the door. But it's possible. The lampstand hasn't gone yet from that church. But the Lord is outside the door of the church of which he is head, knocking. That then leads me to underline this last thing upon which I cannot dwell, but which I will say and trust the Holy Spirit in just a sentence or two to burn into your heart the truth of the whole thing. When the majority fail, God always takes the overcomer and fulfills his purpose through them to the blessing of the whole. It doesn't matter where you turn in Scripture, you will find this principle. He said to the whole people of God, the whole of Israel, that they should be a kingdom of priests unto me. But they failed. They set up a golden calf and worshipped it. And God spoke through Moses and said, Let whosoever hearkens to the voice of God, let him come to me. And only the tribe of Levi heard. And they went to Moses. And then he said, Take your sword and go through the camp. Whoever it is, relative, friend, whoever it is, slay them. Right the way through the camp, they went. And God said of Levi, I will take Levi for my priests in place of the whole. And from that day, God said to Levi, You shall have no inheritance but me. I shall be your inheritance. And you shall be the heart of the whole nation, keeping alive my vocation for that nation, keeping alive my purpose for it, keeping alive its true spiritual character. You are the overcomers, not to be an elite, an elite superior group, an inner circle, but you might lay down your life and have nothing so that the rest may have everything. That is an overcomer. People have got the idea about uh, overcomer teaching that it's obnoxious. It teaches that there are first and second class citizens and there's a sense in which there is truth in it. That it somehow or other says that there is a kind of superiority. And there is, in the sense that if you're realizing the purpose of God, that is superior than not. But if we mean by overcomer some little group of elite people who think that they're an establishment that has it, and has arrived, and that everyone else has failed, and can more or less fail for all we care, that is not overcoming. The word that saved overcoming for me is this word, him that overcome, will I grant to sit down with me in my throne, even as I overcame. And that has saved the whole thing for me. For how did our Lord overcome? By laying down his life, and laying down his life for the whole. And when he laid down his life for the whole, he laid it, for it down for every single one. You'll find this everywhere in the word of God. It's not a matter whether it's Joseph, when God takes Joseph and puts Joseph into, into a dungeon where the iron enters his soul, it is that he might save the whole of Israel and finally the whole of Egypt as well. Or the remnant would go back to build the house of God and rebuild Jerusalem and all the rest of it. 
they go back in order that the Messiah might come who should save the whole world, and in particular, that people. It's always the same. The overcomers, therefore, are not some superior inner circle, but those who, like their Lord, have let go of their lives in order that he may get the glory and the majority may finally come into the blessing. There can be no overcoming without hearing the voice of the Spirit of God. Don't ever think that you can belong to a company like this and by virtue of belonging to a company like this you are automatically an overcomer. That's nonsense. The only overcomer is the person who hears what the Lord says, what the Spirit says to the churches. The person who hears the voice of God. Learn then Elijah's great lesson. If you had been to Cherith and to Zarephath and had learnt the lesson of being cut down and slain and being put into the smelting pot, into the crucible of a fiery trial, you might think that you had arrived. If you had been in the contest on the Mount, on Mount Carmel with 400 prophets, false prophets of Baal, and only one in the name of the living God. And you saw God come down out of heaven in fire and burn up that offering. And seeing the whole 400 false prophets slain, you might have thought you'd arrived. But Elijah learnt his biggest lesson. After that triumph, the voice of one fallen woman put such fear and panic into him that he never heard the voice of God. And the panic was so great that God didn't even try to speak to him till he was 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness. And only then did God finally speak to him. And Elijah learnt his greatest lesson that to hear the voice of the Lord is the greatest necessity of all. Now I have no doubt that this word that I have given tonight has personal meaning for us all. And I have no doubt it has local meaning as well as general meaning to the whole church of God. I am sure that there are those of us who have known triumphs of God in our lives and in the triumph have lost the voice of God. There are others of us who perhaps are dull of hearing as to what the Lord is trying to say to us. And surely we as a company are at a point of very great need amongst the people of God. There are things abroad that need to be broken in the name of the Lord. There are things that somehow or other need, we need to get understanding from God as to how to deal with them, 
in the secret place. And if it is really true that God is about to judge this nation, not in years, but in days, and if we really believe that is the word of God, we must surely listen. Or we shall all suffer. So I do trust that we shall not be taken up tremendous as it is with the acts of God. Wind, earthquake, fire. But with the ways of the Lord which are essentially a matter of hearing, understanding, and obeying the still, small voice of God. Shall we pray? Lord, we do bow here in thy presence. And we know, Lord, that there are many, many issues in all our lives which, Lord, could be explained by what we've heard tonight. Lord, we know that thou dost want us to have dominion in all things. Thou dost want us, Lord, to come to the place where we know what it is to reign with Christ, to know his government, his headship over everything. Lord, give us an ear for thyself. Oh, get our ears, Lord. Some of us would give, us, give thee our hands and our feet, but, oh God, get our ears. Make us safe, Lord, that those who have not only known the blood upon the ear, but know, Lord, the piercing of the ear, Hear us, beloved Lord, we pray, in these days in which we're living of such danger and crisis. If thou art speaking, help us to hear, Lord, thy voice, to understand thy meaning, and to be utterly obedient to what thou dost direct. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus.